Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. I am so excited for another year of amazing stories and guests. In an effort to pursue an element of professionalism and consistency, I've decided that I'm going to follow a more regimented posting schedule. I will air a new episode each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. When you are a content creator, you need to experiment with various schedules and regiments. And I've honestly struggled with finding the right balance between work, family, leisure, hobbies, and of course, this podcast. I do finally feel like I've found the right balance, though, and I believe this consistent posting schedule will help me to focus my attention and time. The first episode I have for you this year is an amazing interview with Dr. Ben Madley. Dr. Madley is a historian of Native America, the United States, and colonialism in world history. Born in Redding, California, he spent much of his childhood in Karuk County near the Oregon border, where he became interested in relations between colonizers and indigenous people. Educated at Yale and Oxford, he writes about Native Americans as well as colonialism in Africa, Australia, and Europe, often applying a transnational and comparative approach. Yale University Press published his first book, An American Genocide, the United States and the California Indian Catastrophe, 1846 to 1873, which is the focus of today's conversation. In addition to that, Madley is currently co-editing the Cambridge World History of Genocide, Volume 2, Genocide in the Indigenous, Early Modern, and Imperial Worlds, 1535 to 1914, with historians Ned Blackhawk, Bryn Kiernan, and Rebbe Taylor. His current research explores Native American migration and labor in the making of the United States. This was a this was a thrilling conversation and one I know you'll love. Please enjoy this episode. Let's start by talking about the Spanish and Mexican period uh, before U.S. arrival. Um, and compare it to what happened uh, once after the gold rush as settlers and explorers and whatever we want to call them started arriving. Why did U.S. the U.S. settlers not see indigenous people as potential laborers like the Spanish and Mexican governments before them? Yeah, well, let's first of all set the scene. And I'd like to provide your listeners with a little bit of demographic background so they can understand the trends. So. Before Europeans began to arrive in California, before Spanish colonialism kicked off in 1769, mm -hmm. demographers estimate that there are about 310,000 native people living in California. And that makes California the most densely settled part of North America, north of Mexico. This was an incredibly diverse area with perhaps as many as 100 separate languages being spoken and with dozens of different major tribal groups that can then be subdivided into perhaps as many as 500 small tribal communities. So this is an incredibly complex, incredibly diverse, and comparatively very, very dense part of Native America. What we know from Franciscan records is that the majority of people who are baptized in California's 21 missions, those are the missions that stretch from San Diego in the south up to Sonoma in the north, those were highly lethal places. So most people who were baptized died there. But the catastrophes of Spanish and Mexican colonialism also spread inland as newcomers introduced exotic animals, hundreds of thousands of cattle, sheep, 
horses, mules, hogs, and the like, as well as a whole host of exotic plant species and exotic viruses. So in total, demographers today estimate that between 1769 and 1846, when the United States invades California, Russian, Mexican, and Spanish colonialism led to a population catastrophe. So the population was scythed in half from about 300,000 to 150,000 survivors. Most of that death took place in that coastal zone between Sonoma and San Diego, but it also radiated inland, especially with the pathogens being carried by ancient trade routes. So under Spanish and Mexican rule, indigenous people were, as you suggested, absolutely the labor backbone. Every ranch, every mission, every pueblo was totally dependent upon indigenous labor. The difference between Americans' attitudes and Mexicans' or Spaniards' attitudes was this. Mexicans and Spaniards needed indigenous labor. They were reliant upon it. And many Mexican and Spanish men ended up marrying or cohabiting over the long term with indigenous women. They then generated mestizo families together. This is the, the process of ethnogenesis that happened all over the continent, happened a lot in California. But when newcomers arrived from the United States, particularly during the gold rush period, many of them saw indigenous people as little more than dangerous obstacles to the rapid acquisition of wealth. But the other thing that they brought with them was a sort of fully developed racial attitude. They really saw indigenous people, most of them, as subhumans, as humans unworthy of life. And they were strongly attached to what I call the myth of inevitable extermination. Many of them believed that indigenous people in North America were simply fated to vanish before the onslaught of the Anglo-Saxon. And they wrote about this, not only publicly in newspaper articles and books, but even in their private journals to themselves and in their private correspondence, home to their wives and sisters and parents and friends. And that really set the stage for an, a capacity to commit mass murder with a sense that by killing Indian people, women, children, men, elders, that they were simply speeding what was destiny, whether they saw it as some kind of biological process or part of the divine providential order of the universe didn't really matter. They just saw it as something that had to happen. And some people even wrote that they thought they were putting people out of their misery to kill them, to destroy them, to wipe them out. What's so helpful about that for the human mind is that then killers can displace any sense of moral guilt or moral questioning onto some higher power, be it biological nature or God in the heavens above. Yeah. Well, I, I, I bring that up because in some ways there was precedent for using indigenous people as mining laborers. It was a practice in Mexico. It's been a practice in parts of Latin America. And so I guess part of what I was trying to get at is, is why these capitalists that had showed up uh, seeking to develop these mining industries didn't see indigenous people as potential laborers in these mines that were dangerous. And so maybe they saw, you know, given what you're saying about how they perceived indigenous people as subhuman, 
it just seems logical that they would have wanted to usher them into that role, but it didn't happen that way. Well, it did happen in 1848 in the, as I, and I discussed this in the book, in the first year of the rush, there are thousands and thousands of indigenous people employed as miners. They're primarily working for large ranch owners or ship owners, people who already employed substantial indigenous labor. Those people simply redeployed their ranch hands, their vineyard workers, their, their wheat farmers, their orchard cultivators to the mines. But in 1849, there's a massive influx of at least 90,000 newcomers flooding into California. And by 1860, there are more than 360,000 newcomers who have arrived in California. So the labor dynamics change fundamentally between 1846 and even 1850. So you attribute the main difference between how indigenous people were treated to kind of this American ideology of eventual extermination. Do you see religion as a factor as well in that in that particular approach? You know, I don't think that killers mention religion very much, but I would say it's both ideological and it's also just pure basic labor dynamics. The cost of labor dramatically fell every year of the gold rush, and so it became more and more economically feasible to employ non-Indian people. And remember, there are a lot of people arriving who were willing to work for very low wages and who also came uh, in various forms of bonded labor. So for example, there are 8,000 Chilean debt peons who arrive from South America. There are Peruvian debt peons who also arrive. So a lot of people are willing to work for very low wages. Okay. And that makes sense. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the downsides of less contact. If there had been more contact with arms traders or greater proximity to power in ways that other indigenous groups in the United States had access, would indigenous people in California have been better prepared to fight back? That's a terrific question. I think because because when... I mean we we talked about the the diversity of tribes and kind of isolation and microclimates and it, was it just that the structure of how these native societies were all separate from each other prevented them from consolidation in ways like Lakota or the Comanches kind of were able to consolidate and 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 have more of a a pushback against the U.S. So if we look at the genocide period that I'm addressing in my book, we see a population catastrophe. We see the population fall from about 150,000 people in 1846 to not more than 30,000 survivors by 1873. How did that happen? Of course, there were diseases, there was dislocation, there was starvation, people died of exposure. But the real core of what I'm talking about in the book are killings. One of the central features of this book is documenting the story of the more than 300 separate massacres that happened in California. Had there been firepower parity between newcomers and natives in this state, it would not have been possible. So so you're right. This is a central feature. And the way that it worked was this. Newcomers used surprise, and they consistently tried whenever possible to use weapons that had a superior range and a superior killing power to indigenous weapons. So they would encircle a village and they would first discharge their longest range weapons. If they had it, they used artillery. They didn't have artillery, they would use rifles with boring in them that could fire as pretty accurately as far as 200 yards. 
Then they would close the circle. It would get tighter. So they were tightening the noose. Then they would start to use their shorter range weapons. For example, muskets, which were smooth bore and less accurate at long range. Then they'd get closer and they begin to use pistols and shotguns. And only when they got really close would they deploy handheld weapons like axes, butcher knives, sabers, swords, bayonets, and the like. The reason that they did this was to try to limit their casualties to the absolute minimum. When they were firing with their longest range weapons, with cannons or with rifles, they were completely beyond the reach of any indigenous weapon. So that made for totally unequal contests. And also indigenous people in California were completely unused to any kind of assault in which everybody would be killed, in which non-combatants would be targeted just as much as combatants would be. Mm -hmm. So we get these overwhelming firepower disparities that lead to mass casualties. And at the end of the day, it's quite clear that those tribes that had access to European firearms and to horses, equestrian communities, were much better able to withstand the onslaught and maintain their independence for longer periods of time. Legislators in the state capital were quite aware of this. And so in 1854, they passed a law that made it illegal to sell either weapons or ammunition to indigenous people in California. And that made it even more difficult for them to sustain themselves by hunting, but also to defend themselves from attacks by assailants who had far superior range and killing power with their weapons. Let's talk a little bit about process and how these stories are told. I've covered a few of uh, the massacres that you cover in, in your book on the podcast. And one of the things I pointed out is in the narratives that we get from the people committing the acts of violence, they usually point to some precipitating incident, uh, stolen cattle, someone's killed in a dispute over land or whatever it might be. So the question is, should we believe any of these claims about precipitating incidents? And does it even matter? Well, to begin, I think genocide perpetrators almost universally project their own intentions onto their victim. Pol Pot claimed that ethnic Vietnamese in Cambodia posed a dire threat and that they had the potential to destroy all uh, Khmer people in Cambodia. Um, Hitler quite famously saw European Jewry as a dire threat to all non-Jewish Europeans and to Germans in particular. So there's nothing really unusual about that, but we can calibrate our sense of that phenomenon to North America broadly by thinking about the idea of, um, of needing to attack indigenous people first before they attack whites. That's, that's quite a common idea. It begins in the uh, English colonial period in places like New England and colonial Virginia. In California, it's pretty well developed by the time Americans and Europeans get here. That, that idea that we have to preemptively kill natives before they kill us is quite well developed. And so that is a big part of the rhetoric, but there were precipitating events. The most common kind of precipitating event was the loss of stock. So the loss of cattle or sheep or horses or mules. One thing that was happening was that as newcomers destroyed indigenous economies through industrialized ranching, massive hunting, 
the felling of whole forests, the poisoning of rivers with mercury. Uh, indigenous people found it harder and harder to sustain themselves. So sometimes they would take a mule or a horse or a cow in order to find um, a nutritional substitute for the loss of venison or antelope meat or some other traditional hunted or gathered food. The response of colonists was then to launch an overwhelmingly violent response. One cow would go missing and vigilantes would head out and annihilate an entire village of children, of women, of elders, and of non-combatant men. And in some instances, as you know from having read the book, that missing cow would be found the next morning and it had simply wandered away from the herd or maybe it had been taken down by wolves or a bobcat or a mountain lion or um, had, had drowned in a, in a creek somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so in some sense, I think the perpetrators were looking for an excuse. This is particularly true of the 24 volunteer state militia expeditions. Those expeditions were highly remunerative for participants and they were quite profitable for the businesses that supplied them with ammunition and rifles and horses and, and tinned food and the like. You know, some of these things are simply are simply cooked up. And at the end of the day, there was a strong interest in getting control of native land and the resources on or beneath that land. And so it didn't really take much, as you know from reading this book, to set a massive annihilation campaign going. Are there extant alternative versions of some of these narratives? I mean, most of the narratives we get are perpetrators' descriptions. And then, like you said, a lot of these, some of these horrific stories that you can read about in the appendices to your book, where all, all that's left is maybe a couple infants that they decided not to kill. There's not really another side to what happened because no one's left. But do we get alternative narratives about how these things transpired? Yes, we do. We have some rare but very important indigenous voices that describe some of the most horrific massacres. Lucy Young, for example, told the story of a massacre that, that she survived. And, and there are others, but they are fairly few and far between for a couple of reasons. First of all, as you suggested, in many of these massacres, there were very few survivors. Those people who do, did survive and were then sold into slavery were often small children. Another reason that we don't know a, a, a great deal about this from a native perspective is that in many California Indian cultures, there was, and sometimes now, even in the 21st century, remains a powerful taboo against speaking of the dead. It was also simply very, very dangerous to speak about these events for more than a hundred years. And I'm not sure that it's entirely safe to speak about them even now. I've certainly received very threatening letters on a number of occasions. And in one instance, uh, visiting a remote part of California and having presented on the particulars of the genocide that happened there, I was escorted out of that place in a caravan of cars because local people felt that I was directly in danger having named names and pointed out exactly what happened in that place at that. The other thing that we have to consider here is that it is true 
that victors tend to write history, especially when they commit genocide and then they remain in power. We know a lot about the Holocaust, for example, because the Nazis were defeated. Many of them were tried in court cases and they did not get to write the definitive history of the Second World War or the definitive history of the genocide that they perpetrated. But what is quite remarkable about this is that evidence of this mass homicide is simply hidden in plain sight. Because the victors won, they didn't really feel much need at all to hide the things that they did. So we have people proudly showing journalists a bedspread under which they sleep every night made out of Native American scalps sewn together. We have people talking proudly about showing people a tree that they had decorated with more than 40 Native American scalps. And we had a California state legislature, both the Senate and the Assembly, which voted repeatedly to raise more than $1.6 million, a vast amount of money in the 1850s, to fund state-sponsored Indian hunting operations. The last thing I'll say about that is that many of the perpetrators became widely respected in their communities. After the Bloody Island Massacre of 1850, for example, all of the US Army officers involved received promotions. None of them were court-martialed or even censured in any way. Three of them became full United States Army generals. One of them later became the governor of the state of California. And everyone knew full well what had happened because these stories were published in the congressional record. They were published in California newspapers. When the United States Congress gave these uh, men citations for promotion, it was sometimes mentioned that they were participants in this very successful extermination campaign against Native people. Hmm. Let's transition to talking about genocide, the term, its use. Uh, its origins. Why do you think it matters that we use this term, linking it to these massacres that happened in California? Well, I think we want to be able to compare historical events across time and space with a common terminology and a common way of understanding what happened. It's also crucially important because we need to dignify the deaths of the people that were destroyed in this way. They didn't die because they were sick. They didn't die because they were fated to do so. They died because they happened to have born, been born California Indian people, and there was a regime and a state-sponsored killing machine that set out to annihilate them. Another reason that we want to be sure to study this is that we don't want to be honoring genocide perpetrators. If you go to the city of San Francisco and you drive on its streets and you know this history, it's quite upsetting because you're driving on streets named after people who planned, financed, and committed genocide against the original indigenous people of this state. And the final reason that I think it's so important to call this what it was, a genocide, is its common decency. We need to talk about a crime as what it was and not allow the perpetrators more than 100 years after they died to continue to be celebrated to continue camouflaging genocides as so-called war. What what has been pushback? I know there's been some pushback against using the term, maybe that it's we're using the term too liberally or that uh, it doesn't quite meet the same definitions that we prescribed in light of the Holocaust in 1948. 
what what have what have been some of the responses maybe negative to start against using the term well i think there's a widespread misunderstanding about what genocide is and there's a strong tendency especially in the public to define the term in the way that they see fit and the way that they see to be politically expedient to their particular ends in any particular moment i have a very clearly defined idea of what i mean by genocide for a person to be convicted of the crime of genocide a prosecutor needs to prove two things beyond any reasonable shadow of a doubt first they have to prove what's called special intent and that is intent to destroy a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. So that's the first thing that they have to prove. There's no requirement to demonstrate motive. That's not part of the way this law works. But the second thing that they need to prove beyond any reasonable shadow of a doubt is that the perpetrator killed one of the five genocidal acts enumerated in the treaty. And the first of those is killing. And that's really the, the main focus of my book. And I very carefully enumerated how many people were killed and it's between approximately 9,100 and 16,000 at an absolute minimum. That's the absolute bottom end. It's probably many thousands and thousands more. So these are hundreds of massacres, many, many homicides. But there are also all of the other genocidal crimes enumerated in the UN Genocide Convention were perpetrated uh, during this time. When, when there's a debate about the term genocide that often tends to suck all of the oxygen out of the room. When I used the United Nations Genocide Convention from 1948 as my defining rubric, I'm doing so not because we're going to try hundreds of men who are now dead, have been dead for more than a century, but rather to raise awareness so that people can begin to think about what the most populous and prosperous state in the most powerful and wealthy nation in the world owes to the original people of this land. The original people who in virtually every instance that I have ever read about never sold their land, never gave their land away by a treaty that was ultimately ratified by the United States. And yet, are often treated as if they don't exist when there are more than 150,000 California Indian people in this state today. Do you think we use the term genocide too sparingly in the kind of global history perspective? Or do you think it should be difficult to categorize events that way so as to preserve the, I don't know, uh, import of, of the term? I think the question is, does a particular event and policy meet the criteria set forth in this extremely rigorous 1948 United Nations Genocide Convention? This is an international legal treaty, and it sets out a very clear definition. And we can understand that definition with more specificity if we look to the subsequent case law. There have now been dozens and dozens of convictions of genocide perpetrators under this convention uh, in, for example, the International Criminal Tribunals for Yugoslavia, uh, or the former Yugoslavia, excuse me, the International Criminal Tribunals for Rwanda, cases brought forth before the International Criminal Court 
uh, at The Hague, and also the extraordinary courts in the chambers of Cambodia, where Khmer Rouge perpetrators have been tried and in some cases convicted for the crime of genocide. So I do think that the threshold should be high. As, as one scholar said, this is the crime of crimes. It's very different from simple homicide. It is the intent to destroy an entire people in whole or in part. So I believe the threshold should be high. But if it meets the definition, then it meets the definition. I, I, I think that's what you're saying is, is that, you know, it should be high, but we can't try to create an artificially small or artificial barrier to uh, some historical events not being categorized that way. Just, you know, we just have to take the definition as what it is. Yeah, th um, this, you, is about, this is about international law, and this is about supporting an international human rights legal regime that seeks to protect and prevent. Do you think there needs to be updates to the 1948 uh, genocide definitions, the terms? I know that in case law, things get updated and adapted, but do you think there needs to be larger amendments to it? Yeah, I, I think in general that scholars pay far too little attention to case law because many of the questions and debates that they have are addressed and clarified in case law. And that's the same thing that happens, by the way, in US criminal law. You know, we get statutes put on the books by elected legislatures, and then courts at various levels of our judicial system work out in their rulings how to interpret the various elements of the law that are in contest between a prosecutor and a defender in a court of law. And I think we should take that more seriously than we do today in genocide study. Let's talk about intent to destroy. How do we establish that? There's been some discussion about who's directing some of these marauding bands and how do we really establish this intent uh, relative to the kind of the weakness of state governments early on? Uh, how do we establish that intent to destroy? That, that's a really excellent question. Uh, and one that every genocide scholar has to grapple with. It's absolutely crucial. So you've gone right to the core of it. When we think about intent in the public sphere, it usually comes back to the Holocaust. And what the public often wants to see is the equivalent of a Vanze conference protocol. That's the meeting that happened in a seized Jewish house on the shores of the Wannsee in Berlin, in which the leading officers and policymakers of the Third Reich developed their blueprint for the total extermination of European Jewry, with the number of targeted people in each country and specific plans about how to carry out this enormous project to murder millions and millions of people across an entire continent. In fact, two continents, because it also included Northern Africa. That kind of specific document does not exist for the California case. However, we have statements that sure sound like intent. The first elected governor of the state of California publicly said in a speech to both the state assembly and the state senate that California Indians will be exterminated and he called it sad but inevitable. 
And you could take that as pure rhetoric, but then we can connect that statement to the passage by the California Senate and Assembly of a bill to raise half a million dollars, an enormous amount of money at this time, to pay for past and future volunteer state militia expeditions focused on hunting down California Indian people. We had statements from the head of the militia in which he said that, and I paraphrase, either we give up a large and productive area, that is California, or we continue the work of extermination. Senators representing California in the United States Senate made similar statements. We see statements of intent to destroy in whole or in part in the media. It's relentless in this book. We hear these statements from uh, militia leaders, from United States Army officers. And then we also see the proof on the ground in action. The wiping out of entire villages again and again the mass murdering with firing squads or mass hangings of surrendered combatants, uh, the burning down of villages while people are still in their homes and houses. And so in establishing intent in this book, I look both at the published rhetoric on the one hand and at the action on the other. Part of why I do this is I look at case law. If you read the conviction in the very first genocide conviction in an international criminal court, the case of Jean-Paul Akayesu, tried in Arusha, Tanzania, for crimes committed during the Rwandan genocide. The judges, a group of international judges issuing the ruling, said that Akayesu knew or should have known that the acts committed would lead to genocide. So, to, to sort of wrap this up, I would say that it's not true that you have to have the smoking gun document in order to convict. You look at all of these convictions that have happened. In many cases, there is no smoking gun. There is no signed document by the defendant, or the convicted defendant, stating, I wish to exterminate all of these people. So we have to take a little bit broader view and look both at statements of intent on the one hand and actions on the other. Yeah, it seems like you're describing a milieu where we see smoke, even though maybe we don't have this like definitive document. Let me give you a chance to respond to one of my previous guests, Alan Taylor, who reviewed your book in the New York Times. And he wanted to push this idea that these were more populist killings that were done kind of in the way like public lynchings or something that kind of bore out of a general a cultural feeling towards indigenous people and that there maybe isn't the same kind of direction from the top that we have in other uh, genocidal uh, events. How would you respond to him? Well, I would say, first of all, let's talk about the militias for a moment. There are 24 militia expeditions. That's a lot. That involved more than 3,000 California men. Every one of those militia expeditions had to post a public bond, elect officers, and apply to the governor of the state of California for permission to continue. When they then received that permission and go-ahead from the governor's mansion, the governor would then release arms provided by the United States Army to the state of California. 
In this way, tens of thousands of rounds of ammunition and many thousands of muskets, rifles, shotguns, pistols, sabers, swords, and all kinds of accoutrements were provided to these 24 militia expeditions by the governor. Was the governor acting alone? No, he was not. The state of California, its assembly and its Senate voted repeatedly to pay these men for their killing campaigns after the fact. They didn't pay them ahead of time and then they got out of control. They paid them after the fact. They audited their records. They audited all of their reports and then they paid them. They took out loans in hundreds of thousands of dollars. They issued bonds that were then purchased by the major banking institutions of the day, not only in California, but also in other parts of the United States. And ultimately the men who participated in these operations often rose to celebrated positions of power. Why is this important? Why is this not simply a mob? Because the democratic process and the laws of the state of California were all supporting this. The legislature passed laws preventing Indian people from serving as witnesses in trials for or against whites, either civil or criminal cases. They passed laws barring California Indian people from serving as jurors, from serving as lawyers, from serving as judges. So in addition to funding the killing campaigns, the state of California passed a whole host of laws that denied Indians participation in the new state's legal system, and that at the same time denied them protection by the new state's legal system. Meanwhile, if California legislators and executives were the architects of mass annihilation, the federal government of the United States ultimately supported all this. They were the final arbiters of the design, I think we could say. They reimbursed the state of California the vast majority of the money that they spent on these militia operations. Then when the civil war began, the United States army took over the killing campaigns. California legislature then supported that by raising another massive bond to provide bounties for men who had volunteered to join the United States army. And of course the United States army operations, which by the way, killed more California Indian people than the militias. Those were all directly uh, controlled their budget by the Congress of the United States and the executive and its courts as well. So we really don't see much in the way of state or federal intervention ever to protect California Indian people. Rather, what we see is a very widespread grant of impunity. Now, it is true to Professor Taylor's point that vigilantes killed at least 6,400 additional California Indian people. I would argue that they did so because it was very clear to them through the media and through policies that the federal government and the government of the state of California were granting them total impunity to murder, rape, beat, enslave, and otherwise attack California Indian people with no fear of any re legal repercussion. And I struggle to name any cases in which non-native people were actually tried and convicted for uh, 
capital crimes against Native American people. That happened in very, very rare instances. Let's talk about responses and implications. Um, so your book was instrumental in leading the governor of California to say publicly that this was a genocide and we need to accept it. And there's been some responses, obviously, within indigenous communities. But I want to talk about what we do with this. I have seen the memorial in Berlin uh, to the Holocaust, those big dark stones. While memorials are great and they are an important public gesture, seems like more needs to be done here. So what, what do you think the implications of your research should be uh, in the political domain and how California sees itself? Well, first of all, I would just say, you know, it's not up to me as academic who's privileged to teach and research to come up with public policy on behalf of California Indian people. But I can tell you some of the things that uh, tribal councils and elders and public California Indian intellectuals have suggested to me over the years. Yesterday, I was uh, visiting with a tribe uh, up in Northern California, and we were speaking about reparations. One of the things that I've always wondered is, will the state of California revisit its tribal gaming compacts with California Indian gaming tribes and um, either diminish or completely eliminate the cut that it takes? A huge part of our state budget comes from taking gaming revenue. And I'm not sure this is really entirely legal since sovereign tribal nations are according to federal law, meant to have direct relationships only with the federal government. It seems quite wrong to me. They should have their money taken away by the state of California. You know, we should also think seriously about water. Should think about the fact that many reservations in California have a critical lack of water. What about control of and access to sacred spaces on public land? Vast amount of California is held by state parks, by the federal government, uh, through BLM, through the Forest Service, through national parks. And California Indian people often do not have access to those places in the ways that they would like. And I think they really ought to have a, a bigger role in the governance of those places. And, you know, one of the central questions is control of and access to the spaces where these genocidal events took place. So the state of California is pockmarked with massacre sites, and they are often on public land, um, but people can ride their ATVs through them or hunt on them or camp on them. Sacred spaces are, are a similar issue. What's happening right now, I think, is is good in that there's a this healing commission. But I think we really ought to have a wider public discussion about what the federal government and what the state of California owe to this state's original indigenous people who have been here for many thousands of years and as many California Indian people believe since time immemorial. It's it's the right moment for us to really move forward with this discussion. And you're correct that memorials and days of remembrance can't undo the colossal catastrophes of colonialism in this state. But they are important steps forward because so few people know this history 
that it's very difficult for Californians to have a meaningful discussion about it. You can't discuss what you've never heard of. Should California history be taught in fourth grade? There are a group of us in the UCs who uh, have been working on and are strong advocates of moving beyond the fourth grade mission project. As you know, the, the uh, legislature of California has recommended that fourth grade teachers move on. It's very difficult to get them to do so. This is a very entrenched process. You know, we're our fourth graders are building models of missions with sugar cubes. And in my opinion, that is effectively sweetening atrocity. What I would like to see and what I think a lot of educators would like to see is much more than the fourth grade. So we've been working on a curriculum intervention which begins in kindergarten and concludes when students are seniors in high school. We are missing out on so much. All of these diverse cultures, there are many artistic forms, they're baskets, they're weaving, they're pottery, linguistic, rich, rich cultures. And yet we just, we're, we're, we're not giving that to the youth of California. And I think it's a, a real shame. It's something we need to, to, to deal with, but it's going to be a political process. You know, teaching the Armenian genocide in California uh, happened when George Duke Majin was governor. That's no coincidence. So California voters need to tell their assemblymen, tell their senators, tell the governor that they want to see this as a major reform and that the state educational standards ought to include California Indian people at every grade, not just in fourth grade, but kindergarten through the senior year in high school. Well, I think there's wonderful ways to do that where, you know, you can teach kids about all the indigenous groups that were here, their different microclimates, their societies, their structure, and that kids will understand that. And I think there's more sophisticated ways to do it than, like you said, sugar cube <laughs> mission projects. You've been on a tour of a California mission and you hear what the fourth graders have to ask the docents. It's incredibly sophisticated and they somehow know about elements of this history, despite the fact that it's not being taught. So I think they're ready for much more than these mythical tales of the missions. So let's, let's dig just a little bit more into education. How do we avoid in teaching this the trap of that kind of victim, indigenous person as only a victim thing that's been common in the discourse? And I talked about this with uh, Dr. Albert Hurtado, and we were talking about survivor narratives being just as important as narratives of uh, victimization. So how, how do we do this? I mean, obviously, it needs to be addressed. We need to understand it in its entirety. But how do we not fall into that same trap? Yeah, you know, we want to tell the whole story. And in this book, I focus uh, as much as I can on both, trying to tell the story, not only of how people were killed and victimized, but how they survived. I'll paraphrase what the Konkalmadu and Wailaki historian, Willie Bauer Jr. says. He's a professor at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And Willie says something like, while this dark cloud of genocide hangs over California Indian history, the story of survival is worthy of marvel. 
And I think about that a great deal. I continue to think about that every day. How did people survive when the United States Army was after them, when volunteer militias were after them, when vigilantes were after them? How did they survive when the traditional economy that they had developed and perfected over many thousands of years was suddenly destroyed in, in, in almost overnight? How did they do it? This took tremendous perseverance and it took a genius for survival and a willingness to endure incredible hardship. Just yesterday, I was talking to an elder and she was telling me about her relatives and how they spent an entire winter up in the snow in the mountains. And they somehow eked out survival and, and barely made it. And they couldn't even start a fire because they thought if the smoke was rising into the sky, the killers would see them and come and hunt them down. This is a story of marvel. And, and as Professor Hurtado suggested, this is a tale that we need to continue to tell, not only because it's part of California Indian history, but because it's an inspiration for all of us to never give up and to preserve our valuable heritage. Yeah, and there's been a bunch of great work recently related to telling different kinds of stories. What what do you make of uh, how Pekka Hamalainen has kind of approached it in his new book? I'm not, I'll confess, I'm not done with it. I'm about halfway through, but I've enjoyed it so far. And it's been an interesting reframing of indigenous history. Well, I can't speak to the new book because I have not read it yet, I'm sorry to say. But I will say that Comanche Empire is often eye-opening for my students because in that book, Pekka Hemelainen really presents forms of indigenous agency that graduate students and undergraduates have rarely ever considered. But the starting point is often quite low for me with undergraduates because they often, they often don't know that there are hundreds of thousands of Native American people in California. They're often flabbergasted to find out that Los Angeles is the biggest Native American city north of Mexico. And often Native American students in the course will say, hey, by the way, I'm here. I'm, I, my ancestors survived. I'm here. I'm your fellow student in this class. So we can think about evil in the world and we can think about ignorance. And my job as an educator is primarily to try to ameliorate ignorance and bring some better, bigger, more capacious understanding of indigenous experiences through this book. So the book is titled An American Genocide. It's about genocide. And genocide always includes, in almost every case I've ever heard of, some incredible stories of survival, some stories that you can't believe are real. You can't make these things up. Students who escaped from the Sherman boarding school in Southeastern California and walked all the way home to Northeastern California, Northwestern California, excuse me, near the Oregon border, walking only at night so they wouldn't be enslaved or attacked or sent back to the school. These stories are, they're the stories of what humans are capable of in the best way. And the story of genocide is also about what humans are capable of in the very, very worst way.
We're going to close with my favorite section, which is book recommendations. What are two or three books you'd recommend to the audience? Well, I have to be honest. I struggled with this question because there's so much great work in the history of California in genocide studies and in California Indian history. So I've, I've chosen three, one from each area. So first I would say that for an overview of genocide and extermination in world history from antiquity to the present, there's one book that I very highly recommend. And this is the Yale historian, Ben Kiernan's monumental and memorable blood and soil, a world history of genocide from Sparta to Darfur. This was published by Yale University Press in 2007. It's won many prizes and accolades. I think it sets the gold standard for a single volume history of genocide around the world. Now, for a single volume history of California, I think it has to be the brand new hot off the press book by another Yale historian, John Mac Farragher. This book is titled California and American History. And this is nothing less than a tour de force and really a must read, I think, for everyone in California. And it can be deployed as a primer for somebody who's just moved here and knows nothing about California. It could also be a textbook in a class. I think you mentioned that in mm -hmm. our before we started the tape rolling, um, discussing the, the power and importance of this book. And one thing that I really liked about it is that Farragher gives primacy of place to a lot of voices that we don't usually hear in our standard narratives of California. And so that brings me to my third recommendation. I promise I'll stop with three. Um, I thought it would be important for people to know about a concise history of California Indians, a single volume history of California Indians. For, the, for this very important work, I'm gonna suggest uh, that folks read We Are the Land by the scholars Damon B. Atkins and William Bauer Jr., who's from the Round Valley Reservation. I think I mentioned him earlier in the podcast. This book published in 2021 by the University of California Press provides an excellent and elegant synthesis of California Indian history from pre-contact times up to the present, and I highly recommend it. To close, uh, what are you working on these days and what's, uh, what's your next project that you have in your sights? So right now I am writing a book about Native American miners in the California gold rush. And uh, I hope that you will see that in press before too long. I'm hard at work on it. Excellent. Well, thank you for talking with me. This has been very informative and I'm sure your audience, our audience has gotten a lot out of it. So I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating or review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.